The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Pretty soon, well we don't know, pretty soon, but someday we'll have a bigger space for everybody. So thanks for putting up. It's just another uh, thing to practice with, being in a relatively small room with a lot of people. Luckily, everybody here, for at least from my point of view, seems safe, <laughs> so we can relax. It actually feels nice to be in a group of people. It's unusual to be with so many people with their eyes closed. You know, isn't it? It's a, it feels sort of nice that we can trust each other to close our eyes, to go inward, you know, surrounded by 45 or 50 people. So if you haven't been here recently, I've been, uh, I started a series of talks on another one of the lists that the Buddha used to teach, and you probably remember a lot of lists were used um, because it was an oral tradition and it helped the monks and nuns and lay people remember the important elements of the practice that the Buddha suggested for people. And so this particular list is a description of a mind in balance, in balance a mind that uh, is able to see through our superficial notions of things, not get caught by our interpretations or typical interpretations or typical concepts that we have about the way things are. See through that and just receive the moment as it is. And then in being learning to be intimate, you know, this kind of investigation that allows us to be truly intimate with the mind and body, then we're also learning to be intimate with how we rea react to whatever is being known. So it's not just that we're being intimate with like the ache and the knee or the sensations of the breath coming in, the sensations of the breath going out. But we're also being intimate with how we relate to that. Like with the breath, we may be aware of the breath, and we may be aware of this reaction that this is boring. This isn't important. And so that's really good to see. Or maybe we have another kind of reaction, like this is important. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad I'm... So that, too, needs to be seen for what it is. So the seven factors, I'll just repeat them every week so that we can learn them. And the first one we talked about was mindfulness, which in a way is the anchoring of the six other factors. It's mindfulness that allows us to see whether the mind is in balance or not. And then there are three energizing factors. We're talking about the first one tonight, investigation. That's what I talked about last Wednesday. And then energy and then rapture or joyful interest. So these are the three energizing factors. And then there's three tranquilizing factors. Tranquility, one-pointedness or concentration, and equanimity. <coughs> Last week I, I mentioned that Sylvia Borstein says that 
Investigation is the quality of mind which meets experience with the expectation that deeper looking will reveal hidden secrets. So it's, uh, it's not like we're paying attention because someone told us to pay attention. But true investigation is some sense that there's something to wake up to. There's something here that we don't know yet. There's something available that we don't know yet. It's right here. We simply have to listen or pay attention or be interested or investigate. And it's easy to miss. So there's a quality of a humility like um, there's something I don't know and it's very close. And I keep missing it mostly because I'm arrogant and I think I do know. And then with luck and with practice, this creeping humility comes in where we, we're starting to have this funny feeling that we don't really know. I mean, this is truly, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say, this is truly the most remarkable thing is how much arrogance we have as human beings. And I, I put myself in that, that boat too. We go through our life in a superficial way feeling pretty arrogant in just the sense that we know who we are and what's going on and what's important, what's important to pay attention to, what's not important to pay attention to. Basically, we, the arrogance is that we think the patterns of our life and the patterns of our culture are what are relevant and anything else beyond that is not relevant. And I, you know, I'm, I know I'm sort of, this is a gross generalization, but the question is, is it true for us? How much, how often have we actually been truly interested in the nature of this mind and body? Don't we, don't we feel like we kind of know what this mind and body is? I mean, it's truly, it's really the, the great unknown in all of our lives. So mindfulness practice generally, or this path that the Buddha taught, this path of awakening, what we call in Buddhism the Dhamma. So the Dhamma refers to both things as they are and the teachings that suggest we should wake up to things as they are. So the Buddha's models, his set of teaching is referred to as the Dhamma, which is the Pali word, or the Dharma, which is the Sanskrit, Sanskrit word. But it also refers to what we wake up to when we practice, when we study the Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings, we wake up to the Dhamma the way it is. So it's used in different ways. So deeper looking will reveal hidden secrets. So what are those secrets that get revealed? Well, it, it helps a little actually to talk about the secrets that are revealed if they turn our mind in the direction of things as they are. So in, in Buddhism, there are uh, what's called right thinking, which is thinking that leads to less suffering. And wrong thinking is thinking that leads to more stress, more suffering. So right thinking is any thinking that directs the attention back in on itself. So the mind has this tendency to always be looking outward. I have a great a good quote here. Let's see if I can track it down. Oh yeah, here it is. 
It's Larry Rosenberg, a, a good teacher. Some of you might have heard of him probably through his books. He teaches out at the Cambridge Insight uh, Center, Insight Meditation Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he also teaches at the Insight Meditation Center, the big sort of the grandfather or grandmother of a lot of the smaller centers, the Common Ground um, IMS, and the center of Massachusetts is a big retreat center, and Larry teaches there. But he's written a number of books. His best known, I think, is Breath by Breath. In that book, he says, one of the most radical aspects of the re-education that this practice involves is not to locate our problems outside of ourselves, but always look inside. The kalesas, these uh, negative habit energies that we have, the word is kalesa. The kalesas are brilliant at making us look outside. They keep us constantly occupied, so we never look into our hearts. Now this should sound familiar to us. When we're suffering in life, when something doesn't feel good, we round up the usual suspects. You know, that line from Casablanca. We go, we look the same place, like, what did my partner do to me or not do? Or, you know, what are the government officials doing or not doing? So we're looking, we usually look externally to blame, to find fault with. This is the source of my discomfort. This is the source of my disease in life. It's your fault. And even if we think it, we have something to do with it, we externalize ourselves. You know, it's like that bad habit I have. But in a way, we're still externalizing it. What we rarely do is take our capacity to be awake, to know, and know the nature of the heart or mind as it is now. To take the awareness and turn it back in on itself. It's like uh, we have an amazing tradition in the West of psychology and other sciences and social sciences that it's all this way, right? We study the mind by studying somebody else's mind so we can be objective. Well, there's no such thing as objectivity for one. And we're inherently at a great disadvantage studying other people's minds. We've got one right here. <laughs> It'd be much better for the science of psychology for people to study their own minds, which is what makes Buddhist psychology different than Western psychology. Buddhist psychology, and it's fine to call it a psychology, is the mind studying the mind. And Western psychology is the mind studying other people's minds. And it's very easy to create models They have nothing whatsoever to do with a human being and when we're studying other people. But when we're studying our own mind, then all of a sudden it should get very interesting. And there's a lot of resistance to this. Have you noticed? Even though we might sit down in meditation practice, it's not so easy to cultivate, to... Uh, even recognize what it means to be interested in Dhamma the way it is, this mind and body, this heart. It's not even easy to know what that means. It's like it has this amazing Teflon where even though we go through the motions of turning the awareness within, it just like slides right into 
some external reality, like we're thinking about something again, or we've conceptualized our mind, and so we're sort of holding it out there. And basically what we're doing is investigating a fantasy we've created in the mind that represents our mind. We even do this with the breath. Have you ever found this while you're watching the breath? That your mind creates an image of the breath. It's basically playing a videotape for you of your breath, and you're watching this breath, and you can even be a good yogi, you know, a good meditator, like really watching. Because you don't realize you're watching a videotape of your breath, your own imagination of your breath. We're not actually, because the breath has no image associated with it, right? It's just touching. Or if you're feeling the breath down in the belly, it's just an experience of movement. There's no image that goes with the breath. If there's an image, that's your mind constructing an image. And then, as a mindfulness object, that's called seeing. It's not called awareness of breathing. It's called awareness of seeing. You're actually seeing an image. And if you're thinking about the breath, then that's mindfulness of thinking, if you know that it's thinking. So it's not so easy to learn uh, what some traditions call this backward step, where this capacity all human beings have to be awake, to know, we have been trained right from the very beginning to almost exclusively focus or pay attention to external things, to externalize everything. So that's why we spend already um, like four weeks talking about mindfulness, because mindfulness is a more... We talked about how mindfulness is this not forgetting that there is this present moment, there is this mind-body experience, so that there's something to wake up to that's not the content of our interpretation or the content of our narration, the, the sort of ceaseless thinking. There's something else that can be known. And what we can call this, just so that we can communicate together, we can call this the way it is, which is, you know, it's a phrase that's sort of a little bit obscure. Or you can just call it Dhamma, which may be even better. It may be better just to create a new word. Or it's not, We're not creating it. Of course, it's been around for a long time. But we're using a new word for most of us. So we're referring to our non-conceptual reality as Dhamma, or Sanskrit word Dharma. Oh, Dhamma, waking up to Dhamma, not our interpretation or our concepts. So when we talk about investigation, it may involve thinking. It's not that thinking's bad, but here, when we're talking about investigation from a Buddhist point of view, the investigation, even if it relies on thoughts, is turning the mind towards Dhamma, the way it is, the non-conceptual reality of body and mind. So what is the experience of seeing thought in the mind or seeing images in the mind or feeling sensations in the body or hearing sounds? What is that experience when the mind isn't being confused by the, the content or the concepts associated with those experiences? And often when I bring this point up, I, just because we're all sitting here, most of us are sitting here with our eyes open, you can just see now... When we're seeing, like, we're, like we all are doing right now, when we're seeing, it's, uh, you probably 
can notice the concepts that are associated with just the scene. Like maybe in your mind as you're seeing, if you're looking at me, you might have the concept of that's Mark. And not so much that those words are repeating, but there's some content with the scene as opposed to just seeing gray and brown and that peach color, you know, and all the things we see in the shape and the form. To the degree that there's perception and memory, then that's concept. That's the thought. So there's the scene of color, shape, and form. And then there's the content, which is thought, which is mental, mentality. So the physicality of the experience of seeing is just the shape, color, form, movement, light, darkness. And then there's the mental or mentality part, which is the mind recognizing the shape and organizing them into concepts based on memory, based on what's the way the mind's been conditioned by past experiences, right? And so we can't stop the perception when we're seeing, but we can practice not being confused by it. So you can just try. Now, it's not so easy if you're looking at me directly, but if you just look at a wall or the ceiling or the floor, you, because it's not so charged as looking at somebody you know, you know, we don't have a lot of conditioning around the floor as much as you might looking at me or looking at another human being. But when you look at the floor, it's possible to get a sense of Dhamma, the visual experience as Dhamma, the way it is. So we're just seeing shape, color, form, the vibration of seeing, the darkness, lightness, where we're not being confused by, is it maple, is it oak, how old is this floor, should it be sanded? So all the kinds of thoughts that might come up, concepts that might come up, there's just the visual experience. And of course, this is true for any of the sense gates. It could be for hearing, for thinking. Thinking is, of course, the hardest for us. Seeing is probably the second hardest because we have so many, our concepts are very closely tied to visual experience and, of course, very closely tied to thinking experience. But with sensation, with hearing, it's possible. That's why we usually start with sensation. It's a little bit easier to feel the breath, the touching sensation coming in and going out without being totally lost in the thoughts about this is my breath, is that a short breath, is that a long breath. And so, in a way, not really being with the sensations, but lost in our thoughts about the breath. It's relatively easy. It's so hard, but it's relatively easy to stay connected with Dhamma the way it is. So this is just a flavor of what investigation means in a Buddhist point, from a Buddhist point of view, from this tradition. It's first and foremost knowing what to pay attention to, like what's relevant and what's not relevant. Because when we're only investigating our thoughts about what's going on, we're immediately trapped because there's not, mu- there are not that many, uh, there's not that much room for innovation, for insight when we're at the level of thoughts. It's sort of like our conceptual universe is pretty much already defined. And so we can have, you know, we organize our concepts in different ways and maybe it looks slightly different. 
but we'll never get outside the box. And that's what insight, spiritual insight is. It's getting outside of the box. When we get outside of the box, then our concepts actually get reorganized, really dramatically or radically. But we can't get out, we can't have that radical transformation or reorganization if there's no new input. And if we're just on a level of thoughts, there's no new input. It's like we have the same tinker toys. And there's only so many things you can do with those tinker toys. And it's like that with our concepts. We have our concepts. And because we're, we're experiencing the world through the filter of our concepts, all of our experience is doing is reinforcing our concepts. So we, the building blocks are always the same. So our life feels very much the same. I mean, there's some change, of course, but not much. But when we learn, when we develop mindfulness and then use mindfulness to investigate in a skillful way, then what begins to happen is we actually have raw data entering the system. Entering the system that hasn't been getting a lot of raw data because we've been living through the filter of our concepts all day long, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. So as we cultivate mindfulness and the power of investigation, by definition, investigation means that we're mindful of the Dhamma, the way things are, and we're aware that we're aware of Dhamma. We're aware that this is relevant. And so that's the continuity. So investigation starts to have this sense of continuity and feeling the effect. So investigation, in a way, becomes synonymous with insight. Maybe very subtle, gradual insights. So not like, uh, you know, this powerful mystical experience that knocks us down and and we kind of glow for a few days and people ask us what happened. (laughs) Not necessarily that kind of insight, but the kind of insight that does energize the mind and heart and uh, really develops confidence in the power of mindfulness. You know, the kind of insight that makes us interested in coming back, showing up again for our practice. So I mentioned before that there is thought associated with investigation. There's thought associated with the entire Buddhist path. But here, thought to be right or to be skillful is thought that directs the mind towards Dhamma. So turning the mind that knows towards the way things are. So any thought that does that is useful. So now when you hear my thoughts, if all it does to hear a Dharma talk is get you excited about studying Buddhism and going on retreats, then that thought wouldn't be right thought. Because if all we're doing when we hear about the Dhamma is get excited about Dhamma and get excited at the teachings and get excited about doing things like getting a cushion and, and getting going on retreat, then that's what we're going to do when we have our cushion and we go on retreat. We'll get excited about the teachings. And, and we, you, we can do this for a long time. There are a lot of us who have spent a lot of time being excited about the Buddhist teachings. (laughs) But the Buddha didn't teach to get people excited about his teachings. He he taught to help human beings turn their mind toward the way things are. 
And so sometimes when you're listening to a Dhamma talk, you might notice that some people are actually practicing while they're listening. That's a really good way to listen to a Dhamma talk. You can just sit, and when you hear something, you're not even so much trying to track the talk so much, although your mind might. You're just staying present with the way things are. You're feeling the body sitting. But you're also hearing the sounds of the person's voice. You're recognizing the meaning of the sound. But in a way, it's just the practice of mindfulness, being receptive on all levels. So you're not like not paying attention to the meaning of the words, but you're not trying to get it and then reacting to what you're getting. It's just the receptive mode. So you can experiment with that either tonight or just in general when you're hearing talks or through your whole life, of course. I mean, in a way, in the ultimate sense, life is a Dharma talk. You know, every moment is a teaching for us, something to wake up to. And it's just a question if we're constantly putting off the investigation, getting excited about the potential to investigate, the potential for insight, but always putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, instead of opening right now, being curious right now. What is it to have sensation? What is it to have thought, to have emotion? What is the nature of emotion here, now? What is the nature of thought here and now? What is the nature of sensation here and now? What is the nature of feeling inadequate, like, oh, this is too hard, or this is weird? What's that like as a mind state, as a heart state? So we're not taking things in our normal way of interpreting them, like, oh, this belongs to me, but we're seeing it as a direct moment-to-moment experience. Some of you know Santikaro, who's a um, teacher who comes to Minneapolis once or twice a year to lead retreats or to give a talk. He had been based in Chicago, but uh, he and his partner bought some land in southwestern Wisconsin. So now now they're kind of uh, between Minneapolis and Chicago and Milwaukee. He teaches different places as well as around the country. But he wrote an article not too long ago on investigation for Insight Journal, one of the Buddhist journals in in this country. And he says, when mindfulness has become well-established, then that mindfulness can take up part of the experience and investigate it. To select, take it up, and scrutinize it. I like to think of the image of a jeweler working with precision. You see these guys with their little monocles to which they hold up a jewel, and they look at it very carefully. They examine its color, texture, clarity, and shape. They examine it for flaws of various kinds, and they don't just hold it up. They turn it around and see how it looks in the light from different angles and so on. The whole examination is very active. There's participation. It's dynamic. It's engaged. As it is described in the Anapanasati Sutta, which is the Buddha's talk he gave on mindfulness of breathing, the meditator investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. So he's quoting the Buddha there. 
This is the quality of investigation that emerges naturally from mindfulness as a second factor of awakening. So one of the most important things that he's saying here is that investigation is active. Remember, it's part of the three energizing qualities that we need for the mind to be in balance. Without these energizing qualities, this path slides into unconsciousness. And this happens to a lot of meditators where, especially if they've been practicing for a while, they end up falling into trance-like states. And then their mind gets really used to it. So almost, uh, it's almost impossible not to happen if they've not caught this after a while. Like if they sit for the first time, you know, and slide into a trance state. And then the next time it's a little easier to do it. And then the third time it's even easier. Well, if you've been doing it for a few years, it's actually really hard not to fall into a trance state. And after, you know, their 30 minutes sit or 45 minutes sit, they feel good, they feel relaxed, but they haven't learned anything. So they could be meditating for years and they're, you know, it's a relatively wholesome activity as opposed to going to the bar and drinking or watching TV because they're peaceful and relaxed, but they're not having insight. And this happens to all of us for periods of time in our practice where our practice gets off track and there's not enough of the energizing factors there. And so the practice is really passive. And it feels good, so we, it, we, we don't doubt it. And if we're not talking to a teacher or, or not studying, we might just continue this way for a long time. So that's why it's good to learn these lists. Because once you know this list, then from time to time in your meditation, right in the middle of your meditation, you could just recall these seven factors and just have a sense of whether they're present or absent. Is there any quality of investigation in this mind? And then just go right back to your breathing practice. So you just sort of implant that question in your mind. Or you can just say the word. You don't even need to articulate the whole question. Just say the word, word, investigation. And then go back to your practice. But the intention, when you say that word, investigation, the intention is, May this mind know the quality of an investigation. If it's in a feeble state, let me know that. If it's really strong, potent now, let me see that. And you go through all the different seven qualities, seven factors of awakening, so that we really get a sense of when the mind's balanced or imbalanced. So the point, again, that Santikaro is making is one of the characteristics of investigation is it's not a passive state. It's an active state. So mindfulness, we generally think of as a neutral state. It's a receptive opening. So what, in the, what investigation brings to this path of awakening is that it does have an active quality. The mind is actively discerning the nature of what's being known. So sometimes we use the image of a mirror. So the mind is like a mirror. It just reflects what's being known. But in that reflection, there's an interest in wanting to be clear, this interest in not being satisfied with a superficial look at what's happening, but really wanting to understand what, is the, what are the characteristics of what's being known, both the superficial or the specific characteristics, like going back to seeing, you know, like really seeing the brown, the color, seeing the shape seeing the shadow, seeing the light or the darkness 
of the visual image. But then the more we are interested in the very nature of this visual experience, then we begin to open to the what we call in Buddhism the universal characteristics, meaning characteristics that are true for any conditioned experience, whether we're hearing a sound or seeing a thought in the mind or seeing a visual image or feeling a tactile experience in the body. So here the Buddha describes the three characteristics that are true for all experience as impermanence, that no matter what we pay attention to, if if the attention is very keen, we'll notice flux. Basically, there's nothing static in the realm of conditioned experience. Now, things might feel solid and static, but it's only because we're not paying attention. That's what the Buddha says. So we should see if that's true for us. And related to the quality of impermanence, that everything's in flux, everything's process or change, is there's this underlying anxiety or stress to all conditioned experience because the heart, the ego, is looking for real ground. And what we find is change. And so waking up to experience is dissatisfying for an ego. So this is one of the uh, universal characteristics, dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness. So this is, again, from a relative point of view, as we pay attention to the experience, no matter what we pay attention to, even the most sublime experience, like a beautiful concentration experience, or sitting in a beautiful sunset, watching a beautiful sunset next to a beautiful pond on a beautiful fall day. Being fully present, not getting lost in the content, that experience, there will be a quality of dissatisfaction. So says the Buddha. And the question is, is that true for us? And the third characteristic he talks about is the conditional nature that whatever we pay close attention to, we'll see that it arises and passes conditionally due to causes and condition. That things aren't happening randomly. And that there's this web of causality or conditionality that explains, in a sense, everything. Not, not explaining in, a, in an intellectual sense, but it, it, it brings um, a lawfulness to everything that's known. And that nothing can be seen outside of that web of conditionality or interdependence. It's all one web. There's nothing like me observing, oh, everything's connected. But even that is part of the everything that's connected, everything that's one or whole. So that's the third insight. And this can be seen in any. So the spirit of investigation is first just to break through the very hard shell of our conceptual delusion, you know, where we're, we think our thoughts about reality are reality. That's the basic human delusion. We take our thoughts about reality to be reality. It's like taking the menu to be the food. It's not the food. <laughs> it's a menu. Taking our thoughts to be a reality. This is not our life. This is why life is so dissatisfying for most of us, because we're living our concepts of our life, our ideas, our interpretation of our life. We're not living our actual life. We're not even in our actual body most of the time. We're in our ideas about our body, 
I don't like my body. I like my body. <laughs> We're in our ideas of our body, not the actual experience of our body. And then when we do drop into the experience of the body, because we haven't been there so long, it generally feels really unpleasant. So we go right back to our thoughts. Oh, I hate my body. Well, that's also unpleasant, but we feel like we have some control when we're in our thoughts about our body. Our thoughts give us a little bit of ground where the actual experience of the body doesn't give us much ground, but it's much more real. And ultimately, it's much more satisfying, even though it doesn't have the same ground that our concepts seem to give us, and they only seem to give, it, give us that. So first we have to, with investigation, we have to break through the shell of our delusion, our conceptual reality. And then we begin to understand what the Buddha means by the word Dhamma, things as they are. What's walking without the thought about walking? What's seeing without the thought about what we're seeing? What's thinking without being confused by the content of our thoughts? What's the experience of knowing thoughts or thoughting? You know, without being confused by the content of the thinking? What's the experience of sensation in the body without having the thought, this is my body, but just feeling the coolness or the warmth or the tingling or the hardness, softness or whatever it is that's present in the body? So then that's the second part, is really becoming intimate with Dhamma. And the more intimate we are with Dhamma, the more we begin to wake up to what's true about Dhamma, the sort of underlying characteristics of no matter what Dhamma we're waking up to, we see change in permanence and constancy. We see the unsatisfactoriness of that change. There's nothing to grasp. It's process. Like, it really feels like, you know, right now I'm Mark here. But when we understand that I'm born and I die, and nowhere along that continuum is there any stopping, right? I'm born, and then I keep changing until I die. Now, where actually is Mark? Because I'm, I'm this changing process. So where is the solid thing I imagine I am? Well, it exists as thoughts. I have this thought that I exist as a thing, a noun. But actually, I'm a verb. I'm a process. But that's not what we think. We think I'm Mark as a noun, that I have some real substance. But even in this little intellectual exercise, we can see it's just process. And that process never stops long enough to become a thing. It's always changing. The mind, the body, whatever we describe as our life is always a process of change. Maybe you notice that with the breath. This is why watching the breath is such a useful thing to do, because we wake up to Dhamma. What we see in the breath is true for all things. This is the great thing. We can have insight paying attention to anything, the deepest insight paying attention to anything, a flower, the breath, a sound, a cloud, a thought. It doesn't matter. We'll see when we watch the breath that you know we just feel, well, yeah, there's breathing. And we have this noun, this idea that the breath is a something. But when we watch the breath, we can't find it. Have you noticed that? When you get, when the mind gets really quiet, there's a stream of knowing, a stream of sensations being known. 
but it isn't as something you can grasp. Same with hearing. Maybe at the beginning of the sit, when we took those two minutes to pay attention to hearing, it's like, you can't actually, what is sound? You can't really get it, because it's not a thing, it's a process. So I'm not saying sound isn't something. I'm not saying that sensation of the breath isn't something, or a thought isn't a something. But it's not the kind of a something we think it is. It's not something that can be grasped. And we're under the assumption that things can be grasped and give us ground, some place for an, an ego person to stand. And then that sets in motion all kinds of unfortunate things like defending where we're standing and being wanting something more for our place that we're standing. And then we start getting competitive and aggressive with each other. I like your ground better than my ground. Or wanting people to know that our ground's better than their ground. <laughs> and all kinds of things. So I'll just end with a quote from Suzuki Roshi, one of his more famous quotes. He was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, a Japanese Zen teacher who came to the States in the early 60s, I believe, and became an important force in Western uh, transmission of the Buddhist teachings. And in his famous little book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, one of his opening statements is, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, but in the experts there are few. So we can play with this this week in our practice. So you might just work with the two factors that we've studied so far, mindfulness and investigation. So mindfulness is a specific technical factor in the mind. We're talking about the mind that doesn't forget, the quality of the mind that doesn't forget, this is how it is. So it's a, it's a, a recognition that the mind can step out of its delusion in one moment and understand, oh, this is how it is. Recognizing the mind-body as a present moment happening. That's mindfulness. So when you, as you're sitting, as you, as you sort of bring up, oh, is mindfulness present? Then that will evoke this, this. Can I remember this? The mind-body is like this. So we're dropping out of our concepts. And then the investigation can kick in from there, which is, this is relevant. Dhamma is relevant. Not being caught in our concepts, our thoughts, is relevant. It's like a, a sense of awe, wonder, and humility. Like, this is a new place. I'm very familiar with my thoughts about life, but I'm not so familiar with life as it is. So it's like a new place. And a sense of wonder and awe. And this is the beginning of continuity, the continuity of mindfulness that allows for investigation, which is the same as allowing for insight, which is that revolution or that upturning of our view of things because we're getting raw data. And so our view naturally starts to come into alignment with this new data. Without new data, our view doesn't change. With new data, our view can't it cannot but change. It has to change with new data. So I'll leave it here so we have a little time to hear from one another. If you have any 
thoughts from your own practice about investigation you'd like to bring up or any questions about the talk tonight that seem relevant? What comes to mind? And please say your names. Damon. Damon. Um, <clears throat> why does it um, bring despair when I experience that impermanence of things? Because it's a real shock to our concepts. Or concept, right? I mean, the sense of self as a concept, like Damon as a concept, this is me, this is Mark. That conceptual sense of self is quite threatened by the perception, the direct insight into impermanence. So when we do open to impermanence, which is actually easier than we think because it's all around us, everything is marked by the characteristic of impermanence. It's amazing we miss it so much. So when we do open to it, anxiety will arise. So if anxiety arises, that's a sign you're opening to something true. That's good in, in terms of spiritual practice. It should create some anxiety, but we can actually, we recognize with some practice that that anxiety feels good. There's a quality of, of realness, like, uh, like this is, a, like any real, uh, any uh, new learning, you know, it hurts, it's scary, but it feels good. It feels like we're on the right track. So the Buddha calls this the scent of freedom. It's like we have a sense that as scary as it is, there's something unknown, there's a potential here that, that we're, uh, it's like magnetically attracted to. But we have to have a glimpse before we know we're magnetically attracted. So most of the time, as human beings, we're not even aware of that possibility. So we're not attracted to insight. We're attracted to distraction. All we have, we have a vague sense of this anxiety, and we run from it towards distraction. And making the practice more systematic, we can feel that anxiety more strongly because we're more sensitive. But we also recognize a sense of freedom and we can't separate the anxiety from the freedom, the sense of freedom. So that's what allows us to go into that anxiety. Because we have a sense that there's some deep healing, spiritual healing that will happen. But it's scary. It's like taking rebirth. And it's scary. Something has to die in order for something to be reborn. And this is very literal. Some part of our conceptual reality has to die for a new conceptual, a new but more wise conceptual reality to form. And so this is just the process of spiritual rebirth. And we've all been through it. I mean, we go through it as, you know, the process from being a teenager to being an adult, whether that happened for you in your 40s or in your, when you were eight, you know, and probably in many steps, that's, that has some of that same flavor where something has to die we have to realize that, you know, the benevolent parent, if you had one, or teacher, isn't always going to be there for you. And that you're alone in a way, right? That some Remember those moments where we, we kind of got, oh my God, I'm alone in this world. Sort of the ego recognizing what it means to be an ego. Like, ah, so this is what it means to be an ego, alive, a human being, from a a relative point of view. So even that 
we kind of get a sense of like that turn. Now we're going, we're going sort of, it's the ego sort of waking up to what it is and what it isn't. So it's, it actually, it's part of that same process. Because really getting what it's like to be an ego is getting to know the pain of being an ego. And then, then we get interested in that pain. That's one of the things we investigate. I'll talk more about that next week. Thanks, Damon, for the nice question. Tom? Huh? Well, it's just the kind of amazing right now that you are triggering evil because my question was that you asked what things were relevant to tonight's talk, and I hadn't heard much about the ego, and I was going to wait at that time down below the But I think what you say to say that Well, the ego is the way I use the word ego, and I generally I don't use it a lot just because it it has a lot of psychological meaning, and then it can get confusing. But the way that I use ego is just whatever our current conceptual universe is that the summation of our concepts that we live with is the ego. So enlightened beings have egos. They're just not confused by their egos. Where a, a completely deluded being has an ego and they're completely confused by what that is. A wiser person starts to understand that the ego is just the collection of concepts that are used. And those concepts become more wise the more there's clear seeing. So the way that I use it, but you know, other people might use it in a different way. They may use the ego as defining concepts that are based on self-centered uh, attachment, where an enlightened or a wise being being wouldn't have attachment to the concepts. So it just depends on how you use it. But I think it's useful to use even for people with deep insight that they have an ego because because an ego is a little bit like a personality. We're going to have conditioned habits, even if we you know, eventually become fully enlightened, whatever that might mean. We're still going to have a personality. We're going to have conditioned habits in the mind. We just won't be so confused by them and trapped by them. But they'll still come up. So if we had a traumatic experience with a dog when we were a kid, when we're fully enlightened, if a dog appears, there's going to be a rush of fear arising in the heart and mind. But we won't be confused by that fear because as it's coming in, because of the constancy of mindfulness, we'll see the fear coming in and, and there will be this recognition without anybody doing it. There will be this recognition, oh, fear is like this. So because we're not confused by the fear, we'll know, should I run? Or is this fear based on some old happening and doesn't require action? That if we're not mindful, if we're not aware, we'll just assume that that dog is dangerous because of something that happened 40 years ago when we were a kid. Mm -hmm. Say your name, please. Uh, Ken. Ken? Yeah. When you mentioned um, how we tend to turn our lives into accounts instead of a does it seem natural that our tendency would be through that more times of crisis? 
Yeah, in general, the the more overwhelmed we are with pain, the more primitive habits are sort of operating. And you see this especially with kids. I worked a lot in uh, elementary schools um, in the 80s. And, uh, and, you know, when they're under stress, it's like an eight-year-old can be like a three-year-old. And it's, of course, true with adults. When we're under stress, we become like teenagers. You know, we can throw a tantrum or whatever. So then we're, you know, we, we're, when we're having a lot of pain, we're really wanting relief. And so we're looking to grab a hold of something. And the image I always think of is someone who's drowning. I, I wasn't one of those lifesavers, but I've known a, a couple people who, who were the, you know, worked as lifeguards. And they talked about the most difficult part of being a lifeguard is the person who's drowning will try to will drown you because they're so desperate they won't follow instructions. You know, they're gonna do they're basically acting out their primitive conditioning, which is I'm gonna grab a hold of the first thing that comes close to me and I don't give a damn, you know, what the person's telling me to do. I'm not letting go. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. You know, that's an example of what you're what you're talking about. And there, the, what's screaming in their mind is the noun, you know, I want to live. I don't want to die. Other thoughts people have about practice, about investigation? Maybe we should leave it here. It's a good time, actually. So just take a moment. We'll let go of the words. words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.